This week in KMA Land, proposed sack and save lot sale draws council questions. Wind turbine projects in legal limbo in Fremont County. KMA Land lawmakers react to eminent domain legislation. Community First Credit Union opens Shenandoah location and ground broken on Griswold Child Care Center. I'm Mike Peterson. Efforts to get vacant houses and lots back on the tax rolls continues in Shenandoah. At its regular meeting Tuesday evening, the Shenandoah City Council set public hearings for April 11th at 6 p.m. on the proposed sales of city-owned properties. Those properties include the former Sack and Save location at 301 West Sheridan Avenue. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen said it was time to get houses renovated and back on the tax rolls. Two of them are homes that were actually sold before by the city, and then uh, we've recently got them back from the people that purchased them last time, so we put them back up. These are houses that's going to be able to be rehabbed, whether the uh, new owners want to uh, use them for a residence or a rental or whatever, but the, but at least they'll be improved. By a 4 to nothing vote, the council set a hearing for the sale of the former Sacken Save property to Michael and Kendra Weston for construction of apartments or duplexes at that location. McQueen says he's pleased with the interest expressed in the vacant lot. To me, it's just amazing that this thing is set for all these years. Yeah, it was a bus stop, and the city's used it for uh, the pile of snow and so forth. But all of a sudden, we uh, you know we put it up on the uh, on the bid thing. Uh, we got two bids on it. Both of them are good bids, but one of them to me just sticks out for the simple fact that it's a local couple that wants to uh, put either duplexes or apartments in there. And you know, really, our number one priority right now is looking for housing. During Tuesday evening's council meeting, Kendra. Weston told the council the couple plans to construct housing at that location. We were looking at originally a 12 to 15 unit apartment building with garages behind and then parking lot in the front. We're also looking at some plans for duplexes to be placed all around that block with yard. It would allow them to have backyard and then like a little deck area. Kendra says she favored the duplex option. I actually like the plans for the duplexes myself. They were really beautiful. And they were all two-bedroom, two-bathrooms, so I think they would probably present well to a lot of young families, also young professionals, and hopefully bring some much-needed housing. Councilman Kim Swank abstained from voting since his nephew, Brian Kirchert, was the property's other bidder. Swank, however, called for the council to reject both bids for the property. He questioned why the council would sell a property for what he called non-marketing price, when it recently bought land for a fair market price. In fact, the Weston's bid of $4,250 was well below Kirchert's bid of $5,000. Swank says both bidders have good proposals for the land. The first one, the high bidder, wants to put a business on there. I think a business is good. I, I, I see that very well. The second bidder, wants to the, the low bidder, wants to put a housing development on there. I see the need for housing in Shenandoah. I think both good projects. But Swank says not enough information was provided about either proposal. He called for the couple to present blueprints, cost estimates, and other specifics to the council before a hearing is set. Say that, that we go ahead and sell it to somebody, either one of them, and they don't have, they find out that they don't have the fundings or it falls through in some way. So what in turn we did is we just sold a city block for $5,000, which is way below marketing cost, and we have no rights to that lot after we sell it to them. I mean, it's their lot. They can do whatever they want to do with it, or block, I should say, not a lot. 
When asked about Swank's comments regarding selling the property for a fair market value, McQueen says that's not a concern. There comes a time when you just have to cut your loss and move on. And so I think this is an opportunity to have something. You know, this is going to be a uh, multi-housing development that's going to go back on the tax roll. Yeah, you can talk about market price all the time. But uh, I think in some points we have to uh, just cut our loss and move on. And if this is going to be an improvement for the town, then that's what we need. By unanimous votes, council members also set public hearings for the sale of property at 100 West Sheridan Avenue to Dr. Rebecca Rose, 102 West Lowell Avenue to Alvin and Janice Hale, and 305 West Valley to Gina Lamro. By a 4-1 to vote, the council set a hearing on the sale of 109 West Lowell to Jim Downing. Councilman Richard Jones cast a lone dissenting vote, questioning whether the structure could be renovated. And the council approved the city's budget for fiscal 2024 following a second public hearing. Restrictions on future wind energy applications are still on hold in Fremont County pending ongoing litigation. Meeting in regular session Wednesday morning, the Fremont County Board of Supervisors tabled action on a temporary moratorium on future wind energy permit applications. The discussion of a moratorium came at the request of several residents in the county. However, Supervisor Clint Blackburn says they have been advised to refrain from taking action regarding wind energy due to a court order that was issued in an ongoing lawsuit between the county and a group of citizens. Whether we agree or disagree, our, our, the attorney told us anything to do with any wind turbines. They said to basically table it until after the court proceedings is what what we've been advised to do by our legal counsel. Per Iowa court records, Judge Gregory Steensland issued an order Tuesday that the supervisors take no permanent action on matters pertaining to the lawsuit, primarily based on the county's development and utilization of its wind ordinance, at least until an initial hearing is set for April 5th. Supervisors Chair Chris Clark added that would include any action on future applications submitted to the county. But that didn't stop residents from voicing concerns over the county's wind energy conversion system ordinance. County resident Ida Van Syok reiterated that the board should take a hard look at reviewing its wind regulations. Flatten it up, give it more definitions, uh, change the setbacks. Like I said, I don't think my yard should be within a setback circle. It should be from my property line and off. Um, Same with the noise levels, you know, the sound is at my residence, so when I walk to the far end of my pasture, I'm closer to the turbine where it's louder. It's where my garden's at, it's really loud out there. If that's the case, it's going to be louder than the 50 decibels at my house. Additionally, Van Syok suggests reviewing the decommissioning requirements, including adjusting the depth of removal for the turbines from 4 feet to 10 feet. She had several counties in the area are either placing moratoriums to further review their wind turbine regulations, including Page County, or are setting stricter provisions. Page County is looking at redoing their ordinance. Um, Odo <coughs> County across the river has a one-mile setback from their property. If you were looking at moving to this area, would you want to live in a house that has a 1,600-foot setback from their house? Or do you want to go across the river and live somewhere where you know you can be a mile away, you'll have the safety, the quiet, the serenity of your own property? Whether or not the county puts in place a moratorium, county resident Heather Coulter also strongly urged the board to review its regulations to ensure the proper safety measures are in place for residents. If we do not establish these good, safe boundaries and do not make a solid foundation for us to progress on this issue, we're really going to regret this in the future. As in, like, legally, 
whether we have more residents. If we want the residents of the county to be progressive in here, if we want to grow our county, I know that we're the eighth poorest county in the state. If we want to continue growing, we really need to have that foundation established. And you're not going to get anywhere with not acknowledging the safety first. Discussions come after the board approved a permit application and subsequent road use and decommissioning agreements with Invenergy for the Shenandoah Hills in the southeastern portion of the county last year. In related business, the board tabled action on work in right-of-way agreements with Invenergy until after the April 5th hearing. From wind turbines, we turn to the latest developments regarding carbon pipeline projects in Iowa. Recently, the Iowa House approved a bill setting enhanced protections for landowners over carbon sequestration projects, including a 90% threshold for land acquisition before eminent domain is used to acquire other necessary property for a CO2 pipeline project. State Representative Tom Moore was among the Southwest Iowa legislators supporting the bill. Moore, however, expressed mixed emotions over his vote during last Saturday morning's legislative briefing in Shenandoah. To be honest, there's not a good vote on this bill. Because if I vote for this bill, that detracts from our economic development of our ethanol industry. And not only that, but it takes away, could take away, some of the enhanced pricing that farmers get for their grain. So do I support the farmer in the grain or do I support, on the other hand, the property rights? And it very simply came down to me that property rights came first over the economic development related to the pipeline. As to whether the Iowa Senate will act in the bill on its side of the chamber, State Senator Tom Shipley says, call it in the air. That remains to be seen. There is passion on both sides. There is probably more than a share of misinformation on both sides. You know, I don't know what it's going to come down to, whether the utilities board is going to be the one to eventually act on this. I suspect they will but it depends on how the the law gets laid out. Montgomery County farmer Jack Norris is among those supporting stringent regulations against pipeline projects. Norris thanked Moore for his vote in favor of eminent domain standards and urged Shipley to follow suit if a similar bill appears in the state Senate. My encouragement, Tom Shipley, is when you do flip that coin to decide, are you on the side of David or are you on the side of Goliath? There's 10 billion reasons why one company wants to go through. There's a lot of independent farmers out there that go, I don't want this on my land, and I, I think in a land of the word of freedom, that seems a little silly to force somebody to have to take that, to take it from a company like that. So that's where I lie on that. The eminent domain issue is a personal issue. It's my neighbors a mile from me are facing that right now. So. While saying he respected Moore's stance, key executive vice president Greg Connell says he's disappointed with it. Connell believes the impact of blocking pipeline projects and ethanol plants like Shenandoah's Green Plains operation is a concern. The rural economy is a public purpose in the state of Iowa. We grow 15 billion bushel of corn, five and a half of it go to ethanol today, about three of it go to export. So for those that say this won't affect ethanol at all, they're wrong. It, It definitely will. There will be plants that'll be shuttered. But I'm not saying it's all of them. Maybe it's 10% of them. 
State Representative Devin Wood was among the Southwest Iowa lawmakers supporting the eminent domain bill. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Monday morning, Wood described her vote as pro-property rights rather than anti-pipeline. One of the things that uh, has always been a priority of mine is, you know, my agriculture background. And at the heart of this issue was property rights. And so plain and simple, I supported the folks, a lot of the landowners being farm families just like mine who, you know, wanted to see some protections put in place and some thresholds put in place before eminent domain can be used. As of this program's recording, the fate of eminent domain legislation in the Iowa Senate was still a question mark as it faced Friday's second funnel deadline. Council Bluff school officials this week made the difficult choice of closing the smallest elementary school in the district. During its regular meeting Tuesday night, the Council Bluff School Board unanimously approved closing Crescent Elementary School at the end of the current school year. Chief of Elementary Schools Mark Schultz says declining enrollment has spurred the discussion of closing the elementary despite efforts to counteract the trend and increased expenses district-wide. The school currently has 64 students enrolled. School Board President Chris LaFerla says staff and elected officials have not taken the decision lightly. All of us at one point in time behind the scenes have been advocates for Crescent in one way or another and I just wanted to be on record saying that all of us have good intentions and this is a decision we don't want to make. Schultz also cited numbers indicating that less than 50% of the students in the Crescent Boundary attend the K-5 school, with 41 of the 122 potential students open enrolling in another district. Board member Jill Shudak says the Council Bluff School District is not alone in making these types of decisions, saying the discussion arose from what she called years of inadequate increases in state funding. Even if enrollment stayed flat, we're not being funded by the state where we need to be as a state across the whole, right? So this isn't Crescent-specific. This is Constable Schools. This is Lewis Central. This is Underwood. We're not getting the funding that the public education system needs in order to, to sustain this. The board's decision came despite over an hour's worth of comments during a public hearing before the vote urging the board to keep the school open. Crescent resident Sean Shea says the board should factor more than just the numbers into their decision. We've done everything. Nonprofits, fundraised, we're ready to build a preschool, daycare. Where's my elected official? You are the person that decides, not the numbers, not the way you stack those numbers. And I'm looking for you to represent us. Meanwhile, Pottawatomie County Supervisor Brian Shea says economic development efforts are taking off in and around Crescent, particularly housing after recovering from the Missouri River flooding. We've built, I think, six other homes besides the uh, 16 that are up there now, and he's got more coming. Our businesses are booming. Our ski hills is booming. Every little restaurant and everything, we brought in uh, some construction companies we rebuild our uh, Casey store. We also got a Dollar General. <laughs> Might be funny to you, but when you live out there and you got to go get a gallon of milk or something, that's a big deal. Crescent students are expected to attend Lewis and Clark and College View Elementary Schools next school year, and the district will offer transportation. The move is expected to save the district roughly $911,000. Shenandoah residents this week celebrated the opening of a new financial institution. 
Ribbon-cutting ceremonies were held for Community First Credit Union's new location at 700 South Fremont Street Wednesday morning. Greg Hanshaw is president and CEO of the Ottumwa-based credit union. Hanshaw tells KMA News his company is excited to open the 4,000-square-foot facility. This is the culmination of literally about three years of work, um, beginning with some conversations two and a half, three years ago, and then all sorts of coordinating and planning, obviously, finding a site to build on, and we believe we, we got the absolute best spot in the entire community. Community First purchased the former Skateland property on U.S. Highway 59 to build a state-of-the-art facility. Among other amenities, the location offers multiple drive-up lanes, a drive-up ATM, and interior space for various lenders. Hanshaw says the land offered the credit union the perfect location to build a modern facility. When we come to a new community like Shenandoah, well, that's what we look for. Are there, are there opportunities to, to locate ourselves in a spot that will really work well? And early on, we determined, oh yeah, there's a, there's a great spot. Let's see if we have any chance at all of being able to purchase that, and it all worked out. Hanshaw credited the Shenandoah Chamber and Industry Association and city officials for their assistance in establishing the new facility. Citing Iowa Department of Transportation Statistics, Ski Executive Vice President Greg Connell called the community first building the most viewed construction project in the history of the town. There's 8,000 cars go by this location every day. So you figure over uh, 200 day construction, that's 1.6 million vehicles passed and viewed this, this building that was being built. So, so you know, we do have tourism in Shenandoah. It's a little bit different than, than most everybody else's tourism. Groundbreaking ceremonies were held last May. Previously, Community First operated out of the former hometown credit union location at 301 Maple Street following the merger between the two financial companies. Griswold residents counted down to an event for the ages last Saturday morning. Griswold Preschool students joined VIPs in breaking ground at the Charles E. Lakin Child Development Center. Efforts to build the 8,800-square-foot facility on land next to Griswold Elementary School began with a needs assessment in 2019 and recently met the project's fundraising goal of $2.3 million. Steve Beyer is a board member with the Noble Initiative Foundation, the organization spearheading the center's fundraising efforts. Beyer told KMA News it's exciting for the project to come to fruition. As much as having the tangible part of the child development construction underway, it's also the community coming together, so many people in the community committing time and effort to make this all come true. When completed, the center will house up to 100 children ages 6 weeks to 4 years old during the day, with a separate before and after school area for elementary age kids. Other amenities include four classrooms and a gym. Byers says the original needs survey indicated a great need for child care services for the community's workforce. That's become a big economic development factor in the community because one of the critical things in our survey was that we had 40% of families that were not realizing the economic potential they could through their employment because of child care constraints. So the hope is we'll be able to serve extended hours, some before school and after school care 
for younger elementary kids as well. Fundraising efforts received a big boost in February with a $500,000 donation from the Charles E. Lakin Foundation. In addition to a $65,000 pledge from the Noble United Methodist Church, other donations include $450,000 from the state of Iowa and $100,000 in American Rescue Plan Act funds from the Cass County Board of Supervisors. Noble Initiative Board President Jared Wyman says fundraising has not been easy at times. It's a hard time out there. Everybody's got to really work together. Uh, we have been very lucky to get a lot of grant money. Um, like I said earlier, we did get uh, about half of our $2.3 million is grants, and the other half is private investments. Uh, that's just families and stepping up the community to help make this thing make, make it go. Contractors recently poured cement at the construction site, though nice weather allowed for an early construction start. Wyman says completion is expected by December with a spring 2024 opening. Some KMA land students are going deep into a special topic. On Selected Fridays this past school year, students in the Essex and Hamburg school districts have gotten their feet wet, not to mention everything else, in a comprehensive scuba diving training class. Instruction takes place not in a classroom, but in the Clarenda Lead Center's indoor pool. Grant Plowman of Creston is one of two class instructors. Plowman tells KMA News Superintendent Dr. Mike Wells organized the class as part of each district's career academy program. Mike's got a lot of uh, things going on with the school for career development, and uh, this is another possibility that the kids could go and do, whether it be a, a commercial aspect or Perhaps they want to um, lead dives at a resort, or maybe they eventually want to get into instruction and, and own a shop. Beyond learning to scuba dive, Plowman says the class offers other educational applications. There's uh, physics, physiology involved with scuba diving, so they learn the science behind it. They're being taught how to work the equipment, trust the equipment. They're also being taught uh, how to work together and enjoy the sport. Several different things that they don't learn in a typical masks that you buy at Walmart so they're they're learning all these skills that uh, that are going to develop into their um, scuba diving comfort zone. Approximately 15 students currently participate in the class. Jada Wright is a Hamburg eighth grader. Wright says she's learned a lot already in the class. We've learned getting out of the water with our scuba gear on. We have done some activities to learn how to get in water <laughs> and um, we've learned about our scuba gear and uh, the tanks how to let the water out of your mask and how to clear your um, snorkel. For Essex 6th grader Colt Nelson, the class offers a new experience. I thought chances are supposed to be made, so I thought I would learn how to scoop dive for a, for a thing that, that I can use in the future. What's been the toughest part of this class so far? Uh, probably some... Diving in. An interest in a future marine biology career lured Rebecca Hansling into the water. A Hamburg 7th grader, Hansling hopes scuba skills will help her scale new heights, or shall we say depth. I would see myself like taking pictures underwater for just for like fun and going deeper than, try to go deeper than anyone has before. Not all of the participants are middle schoolers. Sydney Fisher is a first-year Hamburg preschool instructor. For Fisher, scuba diving presents a new recreational activity. I love being active and I think it's a lot of fun. I hope that I can do this someday when I go on trips and something like that on my own. Plowman hopes the class expands in the future and that participants will reunite someday at another undersea activity, perhaps even in a commercial diving opportunity. 
Construction is underway in a long-awaited walking trail project at Clarinda Regional Health Center. CRHC Director of Community Engagement and Grants Jennifer McCall tells KMA News the project has been on the hospital's wish list for several years and comes along with the ongoing expansion and renovations at the regional hospital. The one-and-a-quarter-mile trail consists of a concrete walking path to the east of the hospital's main campus, along with a rock and mulch nature trail extending south and west to the hospital. McCall says the trail will serve as another outdoor recreational opportunity for patients and community members alike. Being able to be outdoors, get fresh air, and be able to exercise, there's such huge benefits for that, including mental health benefits. You know, we already have an amazing walking trail down at the city park, and that gets utilized all the time. So this is just another alternative for community members to be able to come out and get some exercise, work on their health and wellness. Saying trail projects are costly, McCall added the hospital has pursued a couple of cost-saving measures, including handling much of the work in-house. Though the concrete portion of the project is nearly 90% complete, plans call for the nature trail portion to be finished by this summer. For more information, you can contact Clarinda Regional Health Center at 712-542-2176 or visit clarindahealth.com for more information on the project. And that wraps up another edition of This Week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.